happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening uh, from lovely Missoula, Montana. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy. And this is the special year-end episode, episode 79 of the EdTech Situation Room on the 27th of December, 2017. And we're going to break away from our format this week and shake things up and take a look at the year that was passed, 2017. And joining me as always, Ways. Dr. Wes Fryer, good evening, Wes. How are you doing this evening? I am doing well, and I am thankful to have uh, made it through the holidays without the deluge of snow, although a little bit, I guess, would have been okay. We got a little bit of a dusting, but I'm here in Oklahoma City, and I'm the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and excited to greet our friend Beth Holland, who is steeped in ed tech research, as I think you've been doing a bit, Jason. And so, Beth, welcome to the show and our end of year uh, summary. We're excited that you're going to lend some true academic credentials to this you know, panel tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me back. Um, so good evening, good morning, and, and all of those other things. It's, it's late here. I'm in Newport, Rhode Island, actually at home for a change. Um, so we also survived Christmas with no snow. Um, I managed to survive Christmas keeping my mouth shut. That was our personal Christmas miracle. I was on my best behavior uh, being seeped in my academic life. Uh, but I am currently a doctoral candidate at Johns Hopkins in the Entrepreneurial Leadership uh, and Education Program, hoping to be done by the end of the summer, all, all things ago. And then I do all kinds of part-time things on top of it. So I'm awesome. around. That's yeah. right. Writing and publishing for various folks. Well, um, Jason, how are we going to roll tonight? Well, our usual format for those that, that have tuned in in the past is to talk about the news from the past week with an educational technology focus, but we're going to take a little bit of a different view tonight and take a look at the year that was 2017, some of the big headlines and stories that dominated the news and talk a little bit about how it impacted education and how it might look in 2018. So we're going to go from panelist to panelist to panelist and talk a little bit about some big picture issues and maybe we'll dig a little deeper into the philosophical discussions and go from there. So Beth, as you are our guest, why don't you pick our first topic for tonight. Oh, okay. So I think my big first topic for tonight, and this has been one that I did not think would be my topic of the year, but really, you know, being an academic has to do with like, what does the research say? And I feel like particularly the number of articles um, that have now come out about we're banning technology in schools and they've been banned for distraction and banned for note-taking. Actually, France as a country is now banning phones. They've decided that, nope, yeah, that was, there was an NPR article about it uh, yesterday or the day before, something like that. Um, so France is now banning phones, but it's all been this big article or argument about we're going to ban the devices. Uh, and I've always come from the perspective of, like, blame the behavior, not the device. Like, it's not the device's fault. Um, this thing is sitting right here. It is turned off. It is in do not disturb. It will not be distracting me at all uh, for the next however long we have this conversation. That's my choice. Um, and yet there's been way too much research that has really blamed the technology. I think it really came to a head um, right around Thanksgiving with a New York Times article about banning laptops in lectures and meetings. I thought the dichotomy of that was great too. It's like no lectures, no meetings. And, you know, again, very credentialed author, very well-respected uh, professor who wrote the article. 
I completely understand and respect her opinion within the context in which she was describing, but these like wide sweeping generalizations that have come from, you know, very small studies, I think has been a plague of education technology all year. Um, so that's kind of my big one that I've just been tracking. Definitely. I think that is such a huge one. Um, and we'll, uh, let you know in the show notes, you can take a look at an hour of Beth talking about understanding research, which was a Skype recording, or I guess, I don't know if was it on, um, uh, we did zoom, which was pretty zoom. cool. Yeah. Right. For, for Atlas, which is a, a great organization and great mm -hmm. conference. In fact, I think Beth and I will see each other in we'll person. Both be there. Yeah. yeah. DC in April. But, um, that is definitely, you know, something that I kind of cringe at. And as you were describing that, I, I didn't get, get, did not get through the entire video. Um, but as you're, you know, talking about validity and reliability and, you know, who the author is and how we break those things down as academics, you know, I'm just kind of having my shoulders sag thinking that, I mean, that's not how a lot of people read the news. And that, that also ties to fake news and the mm -hmm. fact that we've got so many things, you know, flying around that people are not vetting. And so I guess this is a problem not only on the academic side when we think about research and what people are saying. You know, it's, it, it reminds me of Neil Postman, one of my favorites, you know, writing Technopoly and mm -hmm. how he talked about how we worship science and tend to, to not delve, you know, below the surface to really question, well, you know, how many people were in that sample? And was that, you know, actually any kind of randomized or, you know, th those kinds of things. And so I think this is a real struggle that we're going to continue to have in our era of information plenty um, because, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just a sign of the times, I guess. So, uh, we definitely need to come up with some constructive ways to to combat this. And and as I heard you talk about, you know, going to the source and not not quoting this person said that this person said, mm -hmm. you know, but going back to the original. Because um, was was it the West Point study or was one of those that you said? Well, it was a Gates study, I guess, that you went oh, back to and you fault. said, and, yeah. you, and you said I couldn't find, you know, or make that same inference mm -hmm. that they said they made from the research. And that's right. you know what and, academics are supposed to do is go back. And to that. this was. That was, I think for me, that was a huge wake up call because, so the study I was reading, um, and again, it was unbelievably credentialed set of professors who wrote a great article, nothing against it. And it had this great statistic that cited the study from the Gates Foundation. And I'm like, wow, that is totally what I need. And I went through that published Gates report. And the only thing I can think of is it was maybe buried in an appendix somewhere or they made an inference based off of some numbers. But I couldn't I couldn't find that claim. And it was a number. It was something like 85 percent, you know, of teachers demonstrated this, you know, trait in their classroom. I couldn't find it. Um, and so and I have to admit, I've done things, too, where, you know, I've written papers and I go back and I. I reference something and I look at it and I go, do they really say that? Because like you think that's what was going on at the time. And so, yeah, that, that going to the source, like who said it? Um, the other thing, and I, I kind of came to this revelation after that Atlas webinar. And I did, I honestly didn't understand it the first time around. It was always one of those like hindsight is 2020, like why we did these assignments and they would say, who was the intended audience of the study? And I was like, okay, I'm reading academic journals. The intended audience was more stuffy academics. You know, I'm like, well, who else is going to read this? But then I really started to think about it. Like, who is the intended audience and how are you writing to that audience? Because, you know, the New York Times editorial piece versus the scholarly journal article that maybe eight people will ever read. Um, 
has really different audiences. And so what does that mean? And I, I had not understood that until recently. Well, let me jump in here and say this actually relates to one of the topics I was going to bring up tonight. And I think it's it's really important to kind of connect these these pieces together, which is mm-hmm. that I think 2017 really has been a you know, what are the limits of technology discussion finally coming to the forefront as opposed to um, kind of framing technology and educational technology as kind of old school versus the future, which I think is a, a dichotomy that is, is not particularly useful. And I think that's part of the problem that we keep running into with trying to have a, a, a meaningful discussion about, you know, where does technology fit in these pieces? And the things that I uh, have, have, have researched this year have to do with things like distraction of technology inside the classroom, uh, anxiety with teens and preteens related to technology, and then the impact of always on information on, on creativity and divergent thinking. And I think that part of the problem we keep running into is that people do take that single article with a single citation and oftentimes not having read the study, uh, you know, where it was a a really small study that was intended to open a conversation that has a very small number of participants, then a conclusion is made from that study, it becomes a headline in popular media, and then then just gets kind of gets dodged back and forth, whereas research is really intended to be a long-term conversation, and not one study, not five studies, not ten studies, but hundreds of studies really should inform the views of practitioners on the ground inside of classrooms, and that's where I think we need to be a little careful before we allow technology to be impacted by the kind of aha that I think some folks that have been leery about technology integration uh, have started to cite. And and, and I I will say part of why, and I I present a lot on digital distraction as an educational technology issue, and part of what I want to start with teachers is a conversation about this, right? It's not that, you know, technology distracting or technology not, and in fact, if I'm correct, and I don't know if I'm correct or not, right? Because I think the conversations about uh, the research that may back my views here are, are, are still uh, long-term and medium-term as opposed to short-term when it comes to the availability of good research to help kind of inform my opinion about this. But it's not that we should say yes or no to the technology. It's always we should be educating about the technology and making sure that we take a very proactive stance as teachers and educators to make sure that students understand that if it's the most powerful information tool in history, it's also the most powerful tool available to them in history and that there are impacts to their use of it. And I, I couldn't agree more that we really do need to have a broader thought about about research, and, and I can't tell you the number of professional conversations I've been in where I've heard someone, not even a cite an author, but just say that research says that something is, is X, Y, and Z, and it's like it's so much more complex than that. Um, as a, a kind of a related side note, uh, I've been working with a couple of teacher friends of mine that teach in, in various school districts across the Pacific Northwest. Um, I, I don't know if either of you know John Hattie's work. He's an Australian. Um, I think he's an educational psychologist by training. But um, I think his work gets used inappropriately a lot because he releases a big list every year of uh, treatments, for lack of a better term, that can be applied inside of, of a classroom environment and compares the effect size of those things. And I've actually 
had conversations with teacher friends that tell me that uh, an idea that they were they were considering had actually been kiboshed by their administration because they were going to try these other things that had larger effect sizes on the list. And it's like that's such a perversion of 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 what research is supposed to do, which is to inform conversations about making decisions, not provide an absolute ranking of what may apply more than another. And when you start to dig more into, for example, if there's six or seven studies that it might inform this particular so-called treatment, you, know, you find out that four of the studies really were doing some, nothing close to what you are doing or your environment or who your student population is or who your educational environment uh, might be intended to serve. And it's important that you kind of dig and read and dig and read and dig and read. Even if you don't have the formal training to do so, I think teachers with just a bachelor's degree are more than informed enough to start you know, finding those citations, going to the library, and digging up those journal articles, and digging down a little more deeply. You guys will have to help me with this citation, which I'm sure we can come up with. Um, his book, he's he wrote about Silicon Valley and technology integration really early on, um, but he's been an active blogger and active on Twitter. I'm I'm trying to trying to Google to pull up his name because I haven't I haven't said it in a number of months. But one of the things that occurs to me is that in all this conversation, I think this this means academics need to be more active in the social spheres and not just in the journal world, right? Because the articles, and I know Beth, you write for Edutopia, and you know Jason is the the, the tech savvy administrator in residence for NCCE, and you know you guys are very very active in writing, not you know not only in academic spaces but in more mainstream spaces. And I guess that's just one of the, the, the takeaways I have. I think about Scott McLeod and the work that he continues to do, you know, with technology administrators. It's just, it's so important not to remain in the ivory tower and, and focus on those articles that you just, your peers in, in academia are going to read, but, you know, step out, you know, into the wider world because it is uh, a world of controversy. And I think that as, as teachers and, and folks that are, you know, hopefully being thoughtful about the uses of educational technology. This is a really important topic, and this is important research for us to be conversant with. I, I can definitely see myself having conversations with our administrators at school because, you know, at times there can be voices within our school that, that can be interpreted as, as kind of anti-technology. It's really a pro-traditional learning and traditional schooling. But I think it, it definitely needs to, we need, I, I need to have, this is just personally, you know, some really good responses to this and, and to have read the research, right? Because that, at least at a starting point, is going to, is going to give me a different, hopefully, uh, a, a amount of credibility and, and knowledge to enter in that conversation than just, yeah, I read the headline. And I, I will tell you, I'm guilty of that frequently, as I think we probably all are. There's so many headlines out there, right, that you really have to discern what is it I'm going to dive into. And if you're doing your dissertation or your, your, you know, uh, your, your review of literature. I mean, you, you're having an opportunity to get deeper into those things than the rest of us might at this, at that, this juncture. But to me, you know, these articles and I'm dropping in, there's a NPR from 2016, which was, is it time to ban computers from classrooms? That's a little mm -hmm. bit. You know, it's it's not this year, but it's still the same conversation. Yeah. Um, but then the NPR is from uh, December 12th. France moves to ban students from using cell phones yep. in schools. And the New York Times article is November 22nd. So, um, Beth, what should what would your advice to me be as, as I besides obviously read the research yeah, and I mean, you know, read the articles? How else do you respond to that kind of an interaction with practitioners, you know, who, who are uh, seizing a hold of the headline and running with it? I have to take a deep breath for a sec because I had like three things at one time. Um, 
Can I go in chronological order? You can do whatever order you okay. want. So the first one is, were you talking about Larry Cuban? Yes, I was. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> so, now, Okay, good. Now I can work forwards. So yeah, Larry Cuban from Stanford, who really did that pie. I've done a lot of it. I've cited a lot of his work. He's also a very nice man if you get to meet him, and he's very nice on his blog. Um, he came out to Hopkins this fall. So Larry did seminal work, you know, in the idea of computers in the classroom. He actually has a brand new book that's coming out sometime, I think this spring. But what's super cool about that is he's actually been to continue your conversation about how do we get these great ideas out to teachers in the mainstream. Larry's been blogging chapters of his book for about a year. So on his blog, you can go back through and he'll say something like, you know, this is chapter eight and this is chapter 12. They haven't come out in order, but you can piece together a lot of the narrative uh, for what's going on. And then of particular interest, and I'm, I am going to get to where I answer your question, I swear, but he had an article cause I, that came out over the summer. And this is part of a study that's going to be in the book where he went and observed, I can't remember how many classrooms, call it 40 because I can't remember right now. So he observed a number of classrooms in the 2016 school year in Silicon Valley to see like how were teachers using technology with their students. And he interviewed them, a big qualitative study. And of all of the teachers where a lot of them said, oh yeah, the technology has really changed my classroom. He only observed one teacher who he thought had fundamentally changed his pedagogy. So what typically had happened was it was efficiency. It was, you know, using sort of digitized process to, you know, push things out and get things back. But for the most part, even though they said in the study that they had changed their teaching practice, it had been changes of efficiency and not changes of pedagogy. Um, so to now bring this forward, because I really didn't completely lose track. I just working chronologically. Um, I think the big challenge with all of this is coming back to the idea of, you know, what are we actually trying to accomplish? So before we go with like the research says this or the research says that, what are we trying to accomplish? Like, what is that actual goal? Um, and then why do we want to make, why do we want to do that? Like, why do we want to make this change? Why do we think that this is going to be an improvement? Um, and I've been, so those, the gist of those two questions, um, I'll cite myself, uh, come from, um, Bright, it's Bright Gomez, Gruno and LeMahieu, it's a 2015 book about learning to improve how American schools can get better at getting better. And they've essentially synthesized the three questions of improvement science of, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? Why are we trying to make that change? And then how do we know if it would work? And I love the fact that they ask, how do you know if it would work? Like, what's the observable measure? Like, what do you want to see? Not just like, oh yeah, test scores will go up. Because I think a lot of times that is not necessarily, like those things aren't necessarily connected. So when you get this like, well, the research says, let's ban technology in the classroom. Well, what were we trying to do? Like before we look at what the research says, like what are we actually trying to accomplish? You know, and why do we want to bring this in in the first place? Because maybe there are times when, you know, pen and paper is perfect. I'm staring at an envelope next to me because I was in a, a Zoom session with some uh, classmates and like the best technology at the time was to scratch on that envelope. Um, even though I had all kinds of other things in front of me, like that was what I needed at that point in time. 
Um, but, but to know, you know, what's the technology? What is the learning environment? What are we trying to achieve? And then I think from an administrative perspective, how do we make sure that we're communicating this idea so that everybody has the same like mental models and structures going forward so that you can have conversations? And when you say we're using laptops or phones or tablets or whatever it might be, when we say we're using this, we all know what that means. And it doesn't just mean like I'm pushing things out and I'm getting things back and and the kinds of learning environments that we're trying to create. And I think that's probably a more important conversation than what any research says, because, you know, every culture and context is so different. But to know, like, what are you trying to do first? Well, I'm listening to you talk, Beth. The thing that, that keeps repeating in my mind is that, listen, uh, educational leaders, schools, parents, Students, stop looking for one thing that's going to make your school better than every other school ever, right? Because that thing doesn't exist. And I think that's part of the reason why technology oftentimes does get maligned when it's not uh, productive or appropriate to do so is because you expected that we adopted all these these one-to-one environments. We've purchased gazillions of dollars worth of Chromebooks, iPads, Windows laptops, MacBooks. It doesn't really matter what it is. And then didn't put any thought or training or even planning behind it. And now you wonder why you adopted this one thing and hasn't you know fixed everything or fixed all the ills. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's actually an impact of technology a little bit from the broader Silicon Valley impact on education. Uh, I happen to be part of some very side conversations about the, the the summit learning, I think as the group is called, which is the, the Zan Chucker, Zan, Chan Zuckerberg, I mixed that right up, uh, 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 Chan Zuckerberg uh, Foundation Initiative that's trying to work on a blended learning environment that's highly personalized and one-to-one, and there's a, a couple schools in Montana that are doing that now, and if you go and, 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 and start to do some, some on-the-ground research, right, looking for popular news sources on that, the response from parents has been pretty mixed, because it sounds like that it's not something you can literally just plug in, and it starts to fix all the educational ills in a particular school, because because there are lots of factors that go into great learning environments. Beth, and I really love your notion of, you know, how can we, you know, improve this learning environment? What factors can go into that? What small or big changes can we make one or two at a time? And then experiment a bit with that and see what that does for your group of students or your school or your environment. And it's going to beat any, you know, we did this one thing and it changed everything. Just like banning laptops isn't going to be the one thing that suddenly makes your learning environment so engaging to students that it's going to, you know, make up for whatever ground you've perceived that you've lost. I was uh, thinking about the work of Dr. Ruben Puentadura with the SAMR model and the idea that, you know, we're not just wanting to replicate existing processes and make them more efficient, but we're looking at how we can be transformative and go beyond. And, of course, as at the end of the year, I don't know if you all are setting your New Year's resolutions, but, you know, one of the things last year, and I think I'm just going to keep it this year, I, I decided as a tech director, I want to I want to encourage people to be safe, to be connected, and uh, to tell stories. Those were like the three things. And on the the get connected piece, I, I agree, Jason, there's not a single thing that is going to, you know, solve our ills. And there is, there's no silver bullet in the classroom besides an amazing, awesome teacher <laughs> that's continually getting better. And I, and I think each of us will, would be able to generate very readily a list of different connected educators that we know who are very, um, you know, innovative in their in their pedagogies and their uses of tools and things like that. And so if we were to 
do a study that, you know, looked at those teachers, we'd get a very different result than probably what Larry Cuban found, you know, just going to, to classrooms. And I think you'd find the same thing here in Oklahoma if you just, you know, went to some random classrooms. Um, I think that encouraging teachers to be connected and to find ways to improve their practice and to be continuing to learn and continuing to question, right? Because that's the way any of these conversations need to go. It doesn't need to just be, I saw the headline, this, you know, either reinforce, probably, you know, reinforces an existing opinion that I have or thought that I have, but it needs to be, you know, I'm continuing to get more information about this. I'm continuing to check this with other experts and other people that I trust. And so, you know, there's, there isn't a, there isn't a silver bullet, but the connectedness part of that kind of, it does come in. And then, um, the academic idea that we're not just at West Point measuring how well, you know, the traditional lecture environment was, you know, effective, mm-hmm. but, you know, how did we do things that we weren't, you know, doing before? And that, that part of that conversation, again, that's pedagogy, right? That's not right. just technology. That's not just, oh, you have a smartphone. You don't need a smartphone. You know, that's what do you want to do? What do you want to create? What do you want to make? What kind of interactions do you want to have? And I think just broadening people's ideas about how do I interact with ideas and how, how are they sticky and how do I make them my own, right? Because there's kind of, there's a ton of ways to do that, but we definitely see a mindset towards, you know, bias towards the lecture and the traditional delivery method. And, and of course, I think those things might be in some sense easier to measure than some other things that are less, more nebulous. So. So there's um I had to I had wrote a paper earlier this term where we were using as a backdrop for the it was a policy class and as a backdrop for the paper there was a report that came out McKinsey like the consulting group McKinsey has a huge education and social impact arm and so this report came out from um, it was Mona Morshed and Michael Barber who was Pearson and lots of other places and a person whose name I'm not even going to pretend to butcher. Um, I might be able to spell it, but I certainly can't pronounce it correctly. So they wrote this report, it was 2010, and they analyzed 35 different systems from around the world. And by system, sometimes it was a country, um, sometimes it was like a province, like they looked at Ontario. But then in the U.S., they looked at Boston Public Schools, um, Long Beach Public Schools, and the Aspire Charter Network. And then there was this huge range because they had some developing countries, they had, you know, um, they looked at uh, Ontario as an example, they had Singapore, so you know, huge spread. And they put everybody on this continuum and they looked at what did it take to go from poor to fair, fair to good, good to great, and great to excellent. And like poor to fair was pretty much like, okay, there's no literacy in the country. Like we, we're ground zero, we've got to start somewhere. And then fair to good was that, okay, we're starting to get structures of schools and some accountability measures in place. And then fair to good was, you know, okay, we have these common forms of assessment, we've, you know, got financial systems in place, you know, things are running as a system. Well, when they, in 2010, when they put everybody out, Aspire, Long Beach, and Boston were all in the good category when you looked internationally. So what I thought was really interesting was Boston being in Massachusetts, Massachusetts being one of the highest performing states in the country, and here we are going, okay, they're good. But what takes to go from good to great, the two key things, one was the establishment of a common language of pedagogy, not just like tips and strategies and, oh, give this a shot. But it was this common, in, like institutionalized language of pedagogy that everybody knew what it meant. It was from the ground up. And then the second piece of it, they talked about the idea of the professionalization of the sector. 
where everybody within those great systems were operating as these professionals within a learning community. So you had this shared language, but there was constant communication, there was constant sharing, there was total transparency. And so thinking about your idea of like, how do we get more connected and how do we bridge all these gaps? I mean, if we're actually gonna try and get to where we're moving into that great and excellent system, um, that's the big piece. Like, how do we get out of our silos, out of our classrooms, out of the, here's what we've always done. And it's not that like, oh, lecture's bad, but it's, did you make a meaningful, decisive, like a meaningful decision to say that at this precise moment, a lecture for X number of minutes is the most effective way for me to ensure that you can meet the desired learning objective. And I think if you can actively go through that process, then sure, that's the answer. It's not that it's wrong, it's just, but it can't be the only thing. So I think it's developing that language and getting to that point where you can say, okay, we've all agreed in these situations and in this context, this is what we know to be pedagogically appropriate for within our community and culture. And I mean, that's something that I think we have a, a long way to go. Um, yep. And that's why we'll never have one solution because that's, that's such a thoughtful process you're describing. And, <laughs> um, and you know, it's, 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 it's what I wish for schools, right? And I, I've been in schools that have had discussions like this, wasn't even about technology, it was about the thousands of things you can do to make schools mm -hmm. better. But that's the same thoughtfulness we then need to add to discussions of educational technology. And I, and I get the lure because of, of, of cell phones being a great example of this. Smartphones have markedly improved a lot of people's lives for a lot of very good reasons. So if we then take a technology that's similar and plug it into a school, you think it, it evolutionarily would make it better. But that's just not the way learning environments work, right? That there's so many factors that impact that. So it's a little bit of the gas here and a little bit of the brake there and back and forth and back and forth and that's I think the schools that are most successful if you want to find out what they're doing it's not the noun they're doing it's the verb of how they got there right and I think that's a really important piece um, that, that gets left out a lot of these discussions well I have added several of those different articles and books that were mentioned in that discussion to our show notes and Beth if you could put the one on the common language of pedagogy and the professionalization of the sector I got those yeah, that uh, one. Phrases, but if you can put whatever book or link that is, yeah. um, that'll be great. And we do want to encourage everybody to check out edtechsr.com slash links, where you'll be able to find these as well as on the, uh, the podcast. Uh, Jason, is it okay if I take us to a, a, a bit of a surveillance topic? Yeah, in fact, I was going to toss to you next. So go ahead, Wes. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I put a, a host of different links. In fact, I think we'll use probably for our our uh, little picture on the on the tweeted post, uh, a word cloud, which is a summary of all of our 2017 uh, news articles. It, it actually was kind of a, a geeky thing to create because I got to use my my uh, text wrangler, which is now I guess BB Edit, but my grep searching to you know get rid of things between parentheses and you know get rid of dates and URLs and things like that. But uh, when you look at all of those topics, definitely surveillance was something we talked about quite a bit. And um, I put this down under um, this, the title surveillance and privacy 
uh, human rights expression in democracy, digital citizenship. And digital citizenship, you know, is a can be a big tent that in, that includes a lot of things. It can include wellness. It can include conversations about screen time. But I'd like to think specifically about some of the things that we've learned in terms of surveillance in in the the last year. Um, the new article I put in from December first uh, it says German government wants a backdoor access to every digital device. Um, and we've talked about you know encryption and, and whether or not you know tech companies should have that and the pros and the cons. Um, but we've really we've really seen and, and as we talked on the show, the trip I took to Egypt in November really got me thinking more about customs officials and what they can scan and take off of your phone. I mean, especially in the Gulf countries, we're seeing some really draconian mass surveillance um, happening. And uh, one of the, the links, this, this was from June that we had had in the show and I think talked about, it's a BBC World Service report called Weapons of Mass Surveillance. But then there's other articles like the Forbes in September, did Mexico drop $5 million on this unlimited Uber stealth, stealth spy tech? I mean, this is way beyond Snowden, right? And it really could, could, could potentially really chill the kind of good sharing I think all of us are advocates for and, and want to espouse and want to model. So my question to each of you, and I'll toss this to Beth and we can get Jason's uh, response, is when it comes to privacy sharing and digital surveillance, um, Beth, how do you discern the, the, discern the line between, wow, that's, that's cool or helpful, and yikes, that's creepy, bummer, our democracy just got subverted. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm, I'm having a, an existential crisis on that right now because I can't figure out Facebook right now. Um, but I, I'm really starting to wonder. I've become more and more concerned about privacy probably in the last 18 months. Um, of really paying attention to things like where am I going? What am I tracking? What am I saying? Who's keeping track of things and where I used to find it entertaining with things like, you know, Amazon that would send you those things you might like. And because I have lots of nieces and nephews and godsons under the age of 10, it would be like, do you want mixed methods research or snuffle bunny and elephant? You know, like it was great, but now it's starting to weird me out. The, and because I don't understand the algorithms and like how it's doing it, it's weirding me out more and more. Um, this holiday season, my husband and I have realized that somehow if he looks for something on his computer, Facebook advertises it to me and we can't figure out where that. Like, there's a there's a word for that, and I'm trying to think. Kevin Topol's, uh yeah, it's it's, it's called over over targeting or something like that. Mm -hmm. But two years ago, Yanko is his name. Uh, I'll I'll find the article, but he's talked about how Christmas was ruined because the things that he had searched for and that they had bought, yeah. it's like over targeting because a lot of times when people see an ad, they don't necessarily buy it right away. So companies, these things mm -hmm. are merged in the hidden ether that we can't see. But so you know, the gift that you got for your wife now, she you know, starts to see ads for yeah, your, your husband or spouse or, or child or whoever. Um, right. I mean, that's crazy. And are your devices listening to you? I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, that. there's, there's that piece. Um, the, are your devices listening? The whole echo Google home thing that kind of, we've been pretty for technology. People were both like, Nope, enough. We don't need it. Just sitting around listening. Um, there was, uh, we can add this to resource though. There's a great book. It was out, couple years, a couple years old now by Robert Shear, um, who was reporter for the Washington Post. He's a professor at USC now, and he wrote a book about they know everything about you. 
Um, and it's all about the relationship between Silicon Valley and the government and who's sharing what and how's it going. Um, Bill Fitzgerald from Common Sense Media made a comment once, like, do you read books or do books read you? Like when you underline stuff like with Kendall and everything, like what's it? So I'm, I'm in a weird space right now where I'm definitely wondering how much is too much and what to back off on and when to start trying to figure out how to hide some things. I don't know. Not that I have anything really to hide, but yeah. Um, I really wish that we were having more productive federal conversations about this right now. How's that? Right. Yeah. Jason, how about you? Yeah. I'll just echo that, that I wish this wasn't, you know, a, uh, uh, a podcast with, uh, you know, some teachers sitting around every Wednesday night bringing up these issues. Like, this is something I'd like to be reading in, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and um, in in ISTE's publications, uh, like any of the, the many people that write on this issue. But the, the thing I would add to this is that if you need any evidence about the extraordinary ability for social media to track you, go try to put an ad out sometime on Facebook. And I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's, it's some of the uh, outside my day job duties I do for a couple of organizations. I do run some social media accounts and you can uh, use Facebook's tools. These are not hidden tools. Your things are pushing to me as an advertiser to put a chunk of code on your website and assuming people are logged into Facebook while they're on your website, they don't give you a name. They do, however, allow you to take that group and directly target them later. The same reason why, you know, when I'm looking for camping gear on Amazon, Amazon insists for weeks and weeks and weeks after to let me know on Facebook and other Facebook run ad venues that I'm looking for that item and I should probably purchase that. Well, that same power is available to anyone, but yeah, it's used for commercial purposes right now, and maybe you're comfortable with that and maybe you're not, but the, the bottom line is that this technology would then be available to anyone whether they're selling it to you or not. There's ways to try to perpetuate those pieces. And you know, Wes usually turns this back into a, an important issue about teaching ethics and uh, safety and things that seem like they're like boring 1999 AOL internet uh, topics, right? But they are as important or more important now than they have been in, in, in all the time we've been available because of how this technology has evolved so quickly. And my thought is we need to write the articles. You do, Beth, Jason, you do, I do, right? Like we should help drive this conversation. I mean, who are the, I'm not going to say they're yahoos, but I mean, there's, there's people writing these articles that are getting published in the New York times and the wall street journal, right? This is such an important topic and issue. And I do feel like, as, as is the case overall with internet safety, where we don't just want the FBI, you know, criminal investigatory folks to be the only ones talking because they'll convince everyone to throw away their computers since everything on the internet is dark and horrible. We want to have people who live and model constructive digital sharing to be talking about this so that we don't cause everybody to simply shut down all their social networks and say, yeah, that internet thing, that was really stupid. Why did we ever try that? Well, you know, there's a program coming out from um, the, uh, shoot, it's Lisa Guernsey, uh, New America. I think it's just called New America, her the think tank in D.C. And they're talking about the need for media mentors. And, like, how do we make sure that every single kid could have a media mentor, someone that could help them to understand, okay, here's how these things are working, and here's how you make sense of, and I feel like we need to get media mentors for parents and adults, Um I've been talking with uh, my cousin about this a lot. And she's like, I'm a parent. I have two kids. She says, I can call you all the time and you help me out. But nobody's there 
helping me to understand how to help this. So like, how do we create this like media mentors for adults so that they can then help kids? Cause I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception and not knowing how things are working. Well, media mentors, I found a, I found an article I'll drop in. It's called a new 21st century job, the media mentor. Mm-hmm. Two books out this fall help to find this type of educator. This is October of 2016 by Lisa Guernsey, but yep. you know, vocabulary is so important. And that's something at mm-hmm. our school as we're working on digital citizenship and trying to get that going is, is recognizing vocabulary is like a starting point, right? The words that we choose are really important and we have to repeatedly use these words in order to get them into the lexicon so that they can roll off people's tongue, like probably kindness and respect and, you know, other kinds of character education words would. So I love that. I'm going to have an opportunity here at the end of January, uh, beginning of February to do a two-part internet safety, but I want to go beyond that for parents because mm-hmm. it's really starting by with parents that are really scared, you know, and that their kids are, are out there and it's all out of control, but it, it definitely is beyond just the, how do you lock it down? Um, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show. A lot of it is how do I have the conversations? How do we learn together? But that idea of a media mentor is really a good one because the media, the mentorship could, could work both ways. And that, that's an ongoing need that we have. It's not just a one time, oh, got, you know, got that lesson, check that box. I'll try and find it when we're talking. There was a great article from DML about a year and a bit ago, and they were referencing some work from the Joan Cooney Gans Center, um, but talked about the idea of instructive mediation versus restrictive mediation. That like too often it's like lock it down, don't let the kids do anything. Oh, we're gonna protect them because we're putting them in this walled garden. But the problem is then we're not act there. The kids are then developing this understanding of, well, when I become an adult, I'm totally free and nothing matters versus instructive mediation would be this constant ongoing dialogue of, you know, these are the things that I'm thinking through. Like, this is my thought process. Um, like, I I had this argument at the gym. Like, our local gym uses this app, and you can sign up for classes in the app. And I read the terms of service, and I'm like, I don't want to sign up for the app. So if I want to go to spin class, I have to go walk up to the desk and say, can you please sign me up for however many classes I want to do next week? And they keep saying, you know, you can use the app. And I'm like, how many times do I have to say this? I've read the terms of service. I don't want the app. Um. All right. So here's my follow-up <laughs> question to this. Um, and we'll go to you, Beth, first. What's your your usage calculus for encrypted communication apps like Signal and WhatsApp? And, and do you use those? And are you thinking about that? And what what are you – because I guess I Signal – I don't know those words. Sig, Signal is the best <laughs> one for, for – truly having uh, encrypted communications that gets destroyed, right? Kind of like Snapchat, but it's encrypted. Okay. So, and, and what's, when I went to um, Egypt, I mean, everyone was using WhatsApp and I guess mm-hmm. it's end-to-end encrypted. So didn't have to be those apps, but, but thinking about encryption versus just open text messaging or open email and Gmail or whatever, um, are you using any kind of encryption and how, how are you thinking about that? It sounds like you may be thinking about it some in terms of with Facebook maybe, or, or or not or or not yet. I, I you had words I don't understand yet. So I'm going to say I I probably not. I I kind of go with the if I don't want anyone to ever overhear this, don't say it unless I'm right with somebody. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I I mean and I definitely don't have a, a resolution about that either. 
but it's definitely things have have caused me to think more about it. And it is the sort of thing where you're like, but I'm not breaking the law, right? And I'm not, you know, I think that's got to be a big thing in school and for us as well is to recognize that the need for privacy and the value, the intrinsic value of privacy is there and we shouldn't need to like think about, well, but am I doing something the government's not going to like or I mean just you know, having having private conversations and back to the idea of Facebook and, you know, how your, you know, significant other is able to, oh, look, they're seeing ads for the camping gear I was just talking about. <sighs> you know, I don't know. We're we're getting we're able to peek every once in a while into this world where we're like, oh, my gosh, how did they do that? Or how, you know, how are they gathering that kind of stuff? But I don't know that. And if, if we were fully immersed into seeing that the world of information, all the connections, perhaps we would be scared enough to make behavioral changes. But I, I just think we're we're peeking into it a little bit, but we're we're nearly. I don't know. It's. I mean, I think we're willing. Okay, so back up, breathe. Okay, so I guess it was it was a couple years ago when the first things were uncovering with Google and the Google for Education and what were they mining, and that whole conversation first came out. Um, and I was talking to Justin Reich, who's at MIT, and he was a Berkman fellow at the time. Um, and I said to him, I was a little uh, admittedly too cavalier and off the cuff. And I'm like, Justin, what's the big deal? So maybe Google mine some like seventh graders history paper. And being the thoughtful professor that he is, he's, he's like, that's not the issue. Like the bigger issue that we have to understand is that potentially we're raising an entire generation that is complicit in the idea that they've abdicated their right to privacy. And when he said it like that, it completely changed my entire perspective. So I think there's a two-part question. As an adult who's conscious and aware of things, I can make a decision for myself about what I'm, what responsibility I'm willing to accept, what I'm willing to abdicate, what I'm willing to give up for the sake of convenience. But when I think about a child who doesn't have that ability to make those choices for themselves and knowing that potentially this has long-term ramifications, now my responsibility is not only how do I protect that child, but how do I help that child understand that they don't have to be complicit and that they have those rights. And I think that's the conversation that, that I think we're missing sometimes. Jason, I you know there's there's a lot here, and I, I, I so the conversation that, that you're speaking of I think is also complex in schools for maybe a broader philosophical reason that um, schools in general I would say do not balance students' privacy and the the public interest of schools very well, right? And so I think schools, because I, I keep thinking about like having an ongoing conversation with maybe a, a, an adolescent that's a student of yours that you're talking about things like privacy. Well, a school isn't set up to, when a student comes to you and says, I need to be able to have a private conversation with someone else on the internet without getting sniffed. Um, and schools aren't in the habit of saying, sure, right? Let's help you understand, you know, how to best to hide whatever you're talking about, whatever topic you're talking about. So it can be, you know, outside of the viewing of, of, um, 
uh, well, school officials, if you're on school internet, or or maybe broadly adults in that student's life, right? And for the last, I'd say, you know, uh, two, three, four decades, we've generally balanced towards schools having an interest of violating students' privacy. And it just became clear to me that's part of what our problem is here, is that, you know, we have not spent a lot of time really respecting student privacy as a broad issue that courts have generally come down on the side of public safety or student safety or school safety uh, versus that piece of privacy. But it becomes an enormously complex conversation when you talk about, Beth, that kind of ongoing conversation that needs to happen, the dialogue, maybe a human connection in those pieces. Schools just aren't set up for that. And I, that, uh, Wes talked about earlier, we need to start writing about this, right? This is exactly the kind of topic that I keep thinking about. I, I just wrote down a, a, a it's not a very good uh, 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 article title, but it's it's not just about fake news, right? What is social media uh, tracking you for in, in order to sell to you, and what are you giving up because of that, right? And so maybe the headline for the last year shouldn't be you know, how desperate are schools to teach kids how to identify fake news. That's only part of the story. How should we be helping students understand that whenever they leave a digital footprint, that there is a likely long trail that's associated with you as, as part of that process, like the untold story of the privacy piece. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. I I I hope that there's more work on that broadly in schools in 2018. Definitely. And I think that is, that's the key, right? One of my ahas in 2017, <clears throat> and I won't delve into the personal reasons, but it has to do with, you know, situations that we encountered as, as parents with ki our kids and things. It's, it's about conversation, right? It's about we need to be able to have conversation and to have resources and support when you know, a conversation is needed and things are so fluid and so dynamic that we're not going to be able to just take a course or, you know, have the, the specialist come and, and talk at school and tell us about how to be safe online. You know, it's going to, it's going to need to be an ongoing situation of, of conversation. And there's a, there's a place for, in that for adult to adult and just, just parents and, and adults in the room. But I think there's a really important uh, place, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, that uh, with some of the digital citizenship stuff we'll do this year, we'll get kids and adults talking together as well, right? I was, I'm thinking of NCCE, Jason, the, the one time I was able to go, and there was a great panel that they had with school superintendents and tech directors, and they were, you know, talking about how oftentimes, you know, priorities and worldviews are different there, and, and bringing them together to hear what are the top priorities for, for each group, and then how do, how do they, they mix together? And so, anyway, sometimes we're talking about the kids and not having them present um, and talk and have and telling some of the stories about the positive as well all that needs to come in so I'm actually pretty energized by this because well for me personally is right the way that you all filter information and share a book and share a link and share an article and that's it's really an essential it's always been important right to be able to you know read the work cited and where did that what did that researcher you know go and, and how it influenced them as they as they uh, drew their conclusions um, but anyway, I think this is this is very energizing for me personally because um, there's lots of lots of good connections here. Jason, you want to take us down another uh, t tangent before sure. we go to the top of the hour? Things are going pretty quick here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. Uh I want to talk a little bit about automation and, and jobs, and the reason why I, I, I want to do so is because that. We talk about this a lot on, on, on the weekly podcast, and, and part of it's because I, I think, Wes, I can share our concerns together, that there seems to be this notion that pretty soon we're going to vastly have a vastly different labor market, a lot of it caused by automation, and that 
um, you know, we, we should probably think about ways of dealing with that. And so um, I, I recently uh, listened to, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, the episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask, the Recode podcast that covers a topic that is uh, kind of assumed that, that the techies know about, um, but they may not know the details about. So it's, it's, a, it's a great podcast that I would recommend you listen to um, otherwise. But they had an interesting addition about whether the robots are going to come take their take people's jobs, right? And then there's a great blog post by Audrey Waters that talks about this issue from the standpoint of of basically taking the, the other side of this, right? It's not going to be about technology jobs per se, and that, uh, well, I can talk about her separately, but if you mix all these things together, it becomes an interesting study, I think, in, you know, maybe the theme that's starting to reoccur on, on this edition of the podcast is is that working together in conversations is going to be the only way we're going to get to, to, to find some resolution about these topics, right? So if automation takes, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of jobs um, out of the United States, what does that mean? Well, um, is that really what robots are for? Can robots be for more than that, which is what the, the Recode podcast tries to determine, is that are we getting stuck on something that's really not that useful, this notion of, of uh, robots take jobs and that's the way it is, and we'll need to ultimately deal with that, and balances it out by saying, this, no, there's actually a lot of amazing things that go with with the automation that comes with, with robotics and the evolution of robotics. And so uh, I throw that out there as I think it's not only a 2017 topic that we were viewed quite a bit on the podcast, but also you're going to hear more about this. And I think it's the same as we talked about earlier. There's a balance um, between the two, right? It's not schools should be training everyone to code because actually that's not where most of the job growth is going to come from, as it turns out. Um, home health care seems to be a, a much greater topic according to the statistics that, that, that Audrey quotes on, on her blog. But I guess, Beth, I'd start with you. Is the robot coming to take your job? Oh, God, you really threw me a curveball. No, a softball. What's the one you can hit real hard? That's uh, a softball. Yeah, he threw you a softball. <laughs> I was a, a terrible softball player. I batted last. It was awful. We were 2-22. and 22. Um, That was correct. Uh, so there's – I think it's not just the robots. Let me start with that. It's not just the robots. I think – Ultimately, what's happening is this, and I've spent, I've read way too much economics literature, so I'm going to try and distill it all down into a nice, neat little package. But I think the challenge is as technology advances and it removes like these engine, what they call engineering bottlenecks, like, so they start making another advance and another advance and another advance. I think between robotics, artificial intelligence, um, big data, cloud data, but also offshoring and the fact that there is there are labor markets that are, you know, cheaper, faster, just as effective. Um, essentially, it's going to shift the labor market. I think that economic literature we can't ignore. Um, I was just reading an article from McKenzie, like right before we jumped on, and it was, I will add the link. Um, it was from October of this year by someone named Brian Arthur. Arthur Brian Arthur, and he was talking about like where is technology taking the economy and the, the shift from a physical economy to a virtual economy. Um, but I think if you take all of that plus the work out of the World Economic Forum, um, where they're talking about this rise of the fourth industrial revolution being this like convergence of the physical, the genetic, and the biological, um, it's creating systems that we haven't seen before. And so there's going to be this tumult and change. And one thing that always captured me, there's a 
documentary that they did at the World Economic Forum. And the last line is like, how do we make sure that the, the fourth industrial revolution makes us both human and humane? And I think that's a bigger conversation. Like there's not going, I mean, there's not going to be jobs for everybody. I think we all need to just accept that fact that they're going to go away. There's going to be a hollowing out of the labor market. So how do we make sure our identity is not tied to jobs? How do we create systems um, where we're preparing students to learn and adapt? Um, there's, I, I can add another link, um, the Worldwide Educating for the Futures Index that just came out this fall as well. The best systems to prepare people for the future are the ones that are preparing lifelong learners. Um, John Dewey was right in 1916, you know, like we need people to be able to learn um, so that they can adapt and they can scale and rescale um, because, yeah, it is. I think it is coming. And I think until we're willing to admit that we have to change, it could get really scary. Um, and, and that humane piece, I think that's what's made me most scared this year is the lack of humanity. Like we have to start thinking about how do we take care of everybody um, on a political, I think government needs to be involved there because, and business, like there needs to be a social responsibility. We've got to figure out how to amplify more mainstream voices and not just allow, you know, the outliers and the extremes to dominate the conversation. And I think that has happening to a greater degree with social media. And part of that is just the dynamics of, of mainstream media and the way in which, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And what do people want to hear? It's the, you know, stuff that's really going to raise mm -hmm. their hackles or, you know, get them, get them uh, fired up. Um, but I think there, I think there's some really important puzzles to figure out about governance and uh, about communication and about the ways in which we're, we're going to be able to use information and hopefully have moral people that, that can be in the positions of leadership to make decisions. Cause I just, it, it really, <clears throat> when I was in Egypt in November, I was able to talk with a friend about <clears throat> the, what they call the troubles, but it's the, the Arab spring and, and the coup d'etat that happened in 2011. Right. And really with Morsi uh, seizing power and the way in which he was writing a constitution that was going to limit freedom and was going to be very restrictive. I mean, it, he wasn't a George Washington or a Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy to and, and then to see things that are happening in our country too. So I think that the roles that we have, I mean, I've I've really been struck in the last year or so about talking about back to jobs and job security, <laughs> right? I mean, how important not just in my case as a tech director, making sure the printers work and the internet's up and you know the 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 air and the water is is there to to breathe and drink, but you know, the conversations that we need to be having around these tools um, and, and their thoughtful use and, and the ways in which these conversations can't just be on the fringe on a, on a tech podcast, you know, but need to, to be mainstream things that we're all talking about. So I don't know that was a little stream of consciousness there, but I think that the, you're right, Beth, that, that it is, I think it is going to get scarier before things change. Um, we have a, a family friend who, who is a truck driver. He drives, has driven for several different oil companies here in Oklahoma. And I had talked to him last week actually about, I mean, are you concerned about automation and, you know, what, what's going to happen? He's a last mile kind of guy. So it's not the inner, you know, cross country trucking kind of stuff. But I just, I just think these, these articles are out there. We're, we're reading about this. You know, I did quite a bit of reading last year about UBI, universal basic income. 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't think those things are mainstream where people are recognizing that, like, like you said, are we defined by our jobs? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, th- these are not going to be small fringe kinds of questions. And how are we going to provide for people? And are we going to, right? Are we going to take care of people or are we going to, you know, just, I don't know, have some kind of, uh, what, what's, what's the word when, once we're post, post a dystopian, you know, dystopian yeah. reality. Um, I don't know. It's, I think that our voices are important in all this. And so that, that probably is a, a favorable positive slant to put on this is that when we think about empowering other educators, we think about empowering students, we think about listening to their voices and we think about, you know, channeling the passion that different people have for different issues. Um, you know, social media has tremendous potential to be able to do that. I mean, I'm very thankful today not to live in a Gulf state where the, the levels of mass surveillance far exceed um, what I perceive they are here. And, and I know that there, there's a lot of hidden stuff that we don't see. But anyway, I think there's some real positive work for us to do as educators, not only with our peers, but also, you know, with students and with parents as well, because these are conversations that, you know, ripple out throughout the society. And it's not just not just the learning and the lecture and the, the teaching, you know, that we need to focus on, but it's these broader societal things that are just super, super important. Okay, should we pick up one more? Sounds good. Let's okay. let's let's do one more. Do you want to, do you want to take it? Ah, uh, hold on. I'm gonna see what my last third one was. Okay, great. Uh, let me take this one. This is more maybe a more of a techie tech issue as opposed to a larger philosophical one. But um, 2017, in my mind, was the year of battle between Google and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And if you need any evidence that this has been a big year in that fight in K-12 schools, witness the fact that Google is now selling a $1,700 Chromebook and Microsoft, despite the fact criticizing Chromebooks for the last seven years they've existed, basically issued one of their own with Windows 10 S, which is a scaled back version of Microsoft Windows. And so I think 2018 is going to continue to see these two battle. The one piece of statistic that I picked up and I put a couple articles in show notes, um, uh, to kind of demonstrate this is the one place where Google has had almost no success invading educational enterprises is at the higher education level. And that's something that um, I didn't really think about in that context, but uh, they were talking about how few uh, universities, uh, colleges, uh, private or public have adopted Google apps for education um, as opposed to a Microsoft-based product. But then I started thinking about it, and I don't know a university um that is uh, not on the Microsoft sauce. So I, I thought that was a really interesting piece. So Wes, I guess I'll start with you. Uh, do you think there's a winner from Battle Royale, Microsoft, Google um, over the past uh, 360 some odd days? Or do you think it's still neck and neck for total universal dominance? Well, I can't answer that globally, but I certainly can for our school. I mean, I was, I, uh... Of the Surface books that we have, you know, I I got the third version for our head of school just, you know, right before the holidays. We've just had had tons of problems with them. Um, And so we've I I think we're going to continue to have a varied landscape where these, you know, one one note is really the the number one on um, what is it like? What's the, what's the drug that gets you to take more or whatever? Oh, the gateway drug. The gateway drug. That's right. One, one, one note is the gateway drug to Office 365, which is going to probably get our school to, to taste that, that sauce, you know, more than we have before. Um, from a management standpoint, it is interesting to, to hear that 
you know, university, and I, I can't think, Jason, either of, of a university that campus-wide, you know, has jumped on the Google bandwagon instead of waiting for Microsoft to kind of catch up. Um, you know, it's – I don't think we can ever just decide somebody has completely won because it's just – it's going to continue to uh, – it's going to continue to – to evolve and, and flex. What, what we certainly are seeing with things becoming more app store-ish, you know, and a quick restore and being able to to do a cloud restore and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm glad to see Google rubbing off on Microsoft in that way. And if if all of our Windows machines at, at school could become easier to manage in the same way that, that Chromeboxes and Chromebooks are easy to manage, um, that, that could be very positive, not only from a time standpoint, but also from a security standpoint. Um, so, no, I'm not ready to, to declare somebody, someone the winner. Um, of course, I guess uh, Minecraft would also be one of those gateway drugs, right? Microsoft's got a couple of those out there. But we're not, we're not biting on that one yet. No, we're sticking with our, with our old license. Beth, what do you think on Google versus Microsoft? Um, so I, I have feet in both camps. But I have to say, like, as a higher ed student, Google doesn't cut it. Like, I can't do my degree using Google products. They're not robust enough. Like, but at the same time, um, the collaboration features in Office 365 are still a little on the clunky side. So I think what I've, what's been really interesting is working with my classmates. We consider Google as like our quick sketching space. Like we all have our own personal Gmail accounts and it's like, oh, we got to throw this together real quick. Jump in a set of Google slides or gump, jump in a Google doc. But then when we need to actually make something. We go right back to Office. And so we're playing this game. And I think maybe a bigger question needs to start being like once I understand sticking with one platform in the early elementary grades, but I think by the time they hit high school, I want to see more places taking both. Um, Cause I do, I don't think there's a note taking tool out there. I'm a total one note. Like I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I have it on every device. Um, I live and die by it at this point. And I have tried all kinds of note taking tools and none of them have what OneNote has. And is it pretty equal on iOS versus Windows platforms? Oh my God, it's awesome. There's a couple little funky things between Windows and iOS, but at this point, when the latest update came through uh, 10 or 11 months ago, they put the same interface on everything. And so it's pretty seamless. And I mean, I've had times when I've got it running on like iPad, Mac, Surface, all at the same time. you know, the real-time collaboration, I think Class Notebook makes most of Google stuff obsolete. Like, you wouldn't need it for collaboration. Um, we studied for all of our exams. We had a shared OneNote notebook, and we set it up, and off we went. Um, and it just, it, it's, I think it's more than a gateway drug because it's, it's an enterprise solution, I think, especially right. at, the no, high school, at the high school level. Right. Um, you know, I just think, you know, they all have their quirks, you know. Like, Google doesn't have all the tools and they have lots of sort of like gimmicky kind of things in there, but then office doesn't have the collaborations good yet. And interesting. I don't know. And then I don't know. I still, I like I work, I work has like these hidden little features that just, you can't write off. I work if you're a, 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 an Apple person. I'm ready to write off. I work. (laughs) (laughs) It's you have to get in like the weird Apple mindset with it, but it does some really awesome stuff. Um, like I find numbers much easier to work with until I have to run actual like statistical things. So I tend to go from like numbers to Excel. I have this like weird workflow going. Um, I don't know. So I guess I'm in three places. Like 
Well, you're in a good place to answer that kind of a question, right? Because yeah. sometimes when we ask that question, the baby duck syndrome sets in and I only know the one. And, you know, it's not possible mm. to give such a informed and nuanced opinion. I mean, and I think this comes back to the bigger, broader conversation of all of this of like, what are we trying to accomplish and how do we make sure that our students are recognizing that they need to be mm. fluid and how do they learn how to learn? And so it's not about. Well, I understand um, from a management yeah. standpoint, like I wouldn't want to manage Windows stuff if I was a tech director because that was really hard. Yeah. Um, but maybe yeah. that's getting better. But that fluidity, I mean, that goes back. I remember being at Rush Elementary in the Windows 95 lab, and, you know, we had a Mac lab and uh, Windows 95, and people but why are my children here in, you know, this one lab? And we're like, hey, they're, they're going to need to know something else, right, when they graduate. Mm -hmm. It's going to be different, and their ability to, I mean, that's that. That's a constant. I uh, definitely heard that from one of a programmer friend this year who's back from overseas here in, this, in Oklahoma City, and he said, everything we learn is new. It's, all, it's new all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of how quickly can we learn, apply what we've done before, but do it with this new language and this new, new processes. Um, I wanted to add one other thing that I think Beth will be amused by. Um, I'm currently at the end of my, my dissertation process. I'm, I'm writing up my, my chapter four and five right now. So um, I'm doing that at Google Docs if you could believe that. And uh, I, in fact, I told my advisor that I hope this doesn't end up being a suicide mission um, to try this out. But it's it's funny because it wasn't a tool that's really built the way you think it should be um, for, for for research in academia. And it, adding just a few uh, additional features to Google Docs would make it much more advanced to that. But all those exist in the Microsoft universe. And that's uh, that's been an interesting study for me using Google Docs to, to, to write out that, that particular project. Before uh, Geeks of the Week, what are you both using for your bibliography and work cited? Like, are you guys using a third party? What are you all using? I'm on Papers 3, which has now been bought by ReadCube. Papers not, three, yeah, paper. It's the papers app. They just got bought by ReadCube, but okay. um, that's been it for me. It's been great. It works across all devices. Um, it manages all my citations. It holds every single article. It's built out everything. It's searchable, like. And Wes, I'm using PaperPile, which is a plugin to Google Docs, and I, I'm paying for the premium edition. Which has been actually nice because once in a while I need uh, need their assistance on some of the technical aspects of it, but it's been really effortless. Awesome. All right, thanks. A little uh, personal. Yeah, and then yeah, it's the papers app, but they just got bought by ReadCube, so like okay. they're trying to push the ReadCube subscription now. Um, mm. I have some classmates that swear by either Mendeley or Zotero. Right. And it just depends. I think it. the best advice I got was pick something that you want to stare at for hundreds and hundreds of hours. And if it doesn't make you mad, choose that one. All right. So that's how I picked mine was it didn't make me mad. And there I, you go. From from the lips of current dissertation, <laughs> dissertation writing, writing graduate students. Yeah. Pick something that doesn't make you mad. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we geek of the week at Jason? I think we're sure. uh, about there. Sure. I can go ahead and start. This is a really easy one. Um, 
I put a link to a current sale at Woot, Woot.com, where you can buy the 2015 Fire uh, 7 tablet for $20 refurbished. And I bought this new two years ago, and it's um, it's it's a pretty simple, low-resolution, but more than effective enough uh, tablet. But the cool thing about this tablet is that, based on the article that I shared, um, also in the show notes, you can add the Google Play Store to this and turn it into effectively a $20 Android tablet. So the reason why I mention this is because... Um, I would never um, uh, have any concern taking this anywhere. I could drop it. I could lose it. It could be stolen. It could be run over by a truck. And it's, you know, $20 to replace this. And so for travel um, and for when I don't really want to be worried about strapping a digital device to me, picking up something like the Kindle Fire 7, uh, adding Android apps via the Play Store, the simple instructions that I posted to the webpage is a good, you know, geeky project for the weekend. All right, I'll I'll go next. Um, mine is to take charge of your Twitter data. Uh, Jason's mentioned several times on the show how he likes to help uh, educators and others uh, recognize in Google how you can access your activity, your history. You can really see the kinds of things that Google's recording. You can delete those things and decide you know what it is you want to share, what you don't want to share. And since I was talking about privacy and surveillance, I thought I would find something related. And so when you go into your settings for Twitter. Um, you're going to click on the ver- uh, next to the bottom where it says your Twitter data, and you'll have to confirm your password. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff from your, you know, first uh, creation date of Twitter and activation, which you know you can't edit that, of course. But you go all the way down to the bottom, and you're going to find how many apps that you have uh, c- uh, collected. Um, uh, what is it? These are the apps Twitter has collected from your mobile devices to show you most relevant content. Um, it doesn't see the data within the apps, but it knows you have those apps. And it has interests, um, and I, this is the one I just started. So it said I had 84 interests, and I called that down to 59. What's great about this is we're getting some visibility into what Twitter thinks it knows about us. And I'm not a huge fan of the new news feed and whatnot. I mean, I kind of like to just see live, you know, here's what people I follow shared and, and use using Twitter lists. But um, it says I have... Uh, 153 interests from partners, and I'm part of 7,205 audiences from 1,584 advertisers, and you can request the advertiser list. I think this is a step in the right direction, and I hope that we're going to see Actually, um, on the part of tech companies like Twitter is right now, I think responding and just doing this on their own, but possibly some some reg- some regulatory direction where we're going to have more ability to see what's been gathered in the same way that we can run a credit report today, and then you can appeal that if there's something that's wrong. Um, I think that there's an unbelievably large net of data out there about each one of us that is we're pretty it's pretty much opaque to us today to not be able to see. So I'm glad to see Twitter uh, giving us some abilities to see this and then also, you know, correct it if indeed we're not interested in, you know, I think the NBA or there was something else that I probably retweeted something from the Thunder at one point. So it said, ah, he's a basketball guy, but yeah, not so much. Beth, what do you have? Um, so I have lots of children under the age of 10 I buy presents for. And so my favorite gifts that I bought this year, I decided I would change it up, throw those on. So one of them is um, Make-A-Do or Make-A-Do or I don't know how to pronounce it, but it is so cool. It's like these toolkits that you use for constructing stuff with cardboard. So like I bought my godson's like the Make-A-Do toolbox and it's got like cutters so you can cut into the cardboard and it's got all these cool things so you can make it hinge and move and spin and you can build critters and creatures and forts and like 
all kinds of awesome stuff with, you know, the cardboard boxes laying around and it gives kids like all these different tools to actually build stuff with, which just thought was way fun, way more, like way better than just, you know, some packing tape and, and old boxes. And then the other one, this was very cool, um, is Bloxels. And so what Bloxels does is you physically like, it's like a board game, you build with blocks but it lets you you build your own video game and then you scan it. It has an iOS and an Android app and it works, I think, on some of the Kindle Fires too. Then you scan what you physically built and then you can play your own game and then you can share the games if you want. But I just thought it was so cool that you had this like physical component. So, you know, if I was sitting with Ked, we could work on it together. Again, that idea of like the media mentor, instructive mediation. I really just love those things that you can have people physically working together on and then have that digital component. So those are my two favorites of the holidays. And they have oh. a Star Wars one with Bloxels. Oh, do you know, what is the, the uh, theory that says when you make that in a physical space and then connect it to the virtual, then that it's more powerful instead of just being in the virtual? Have you run across that? Or do you I mean, like in the neuro research, they talked a little bit about like just making those connections and like, more firing neurons. Um, I read a study a while ago and it was like kids who work in, with like physical blocks have better understanding of physical principles. I mean, I think you could probably connect it to like social cognitive theory if you want a theory, you know, mm. like the idea of like learning through, you know, inaction. Um, yeah. I think that's something I've heard with Mitch Resnick and lifelong mm -hmm. kindergarten group and that kind of stuff mentioned that it's one of those con those, I, I don't know if there is a phrase yeah. for it, but it's sort of like the, the reason for Pico crickets or for, you know, Lego we do or, or mm -hmm. things that have that physical, you know, that connects to the, to yeah. the, the world. I think the social learning really helps. Absolutely. Well, Jason, it's, cool. a, it's a shame that we, uh, you know, just sat and looked at each other tonight and got bored. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just trying to figure out if, if I should order these make-do things right now. That's the coolest thing I've ever Is, seen. Isn't that cool? Oh, and that's really cool. Go look. There's the most awesome books of like things you can make with cardboard, that's and like awesome. at every that's... age group. I bought one for it's like critters. You can make all these cardboard critters. Like, how cool is that? I know it's like it's like you're making Legos out of trash, basically. Yeah. That's cool. Well, shout out to Peggy George, who says she wishes she knew about Make Do before Christmas. Um, but hey, maybe uh, who knows? They'll they'll be uh, after Christmas sales or use some use some some of those gift certificates mm -hmm. that we might have got. Um, but thanks to Peggy for also sharing a bunch of links. So we will drop those links in. And uh, Beth, any others that you want to to drop in? And and even if I miss some, yeah, please let let me know uh, as far as the because I'll 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 copy what we've got here and put it over in our regular Google Doc as well as on the the post for the. The, the episode as well. Cool. <laughs> I will do it. Well, this has been uh, the EdTech Situation Room. Um, thanks to Beth, our guest tonight, uh, talking thanks through the years of 2017. And we hope you'll join us back in 2018 so we can talk about if any of these uh, predictions we made tonight about discussions and the ongoing need of schools to adapt to new technologies comes to fruition. But 
We don't do this every week. It's not always about the past year. The Antic Situation Room is a Wednesday night podcast where we broadcast at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 uh, p.m. Central Time, which I think is like 400 UTC. At some point, I'm going to write that number down so I have that available to us every week. But you can always go to our website, edtechsr.com, um, to find a download. You can go to your favorite podcast app. We appear in, in the majority of those. Um, or you could go to YouTube and join our channel there and see this podcast every week. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope to see you sometime again in the future. Have a good day. Happy 2017-18, everyone. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming.